You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. The Devil, exposed for what he really is. Hello and welcome to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by ChristadelphianVideo.org. This episode is a comprehensive presentation about what the Bible tells us, actually tells us, about the devil. This will be a surprise for many listeners. So there is a handout coming around. The handout will have a summary of a number of different points under different headings. Um, We will be talking about many of those things this evening, but there's also some additional points that are there uh, that you can look at later and to round out the understanding of of some of these things. But one of the things that we want to appreciate when we come to a subject like this is that our understanding of it is important because our understanding of the devil affects the understanding of a number of other Bible subjects. For instance, Our understanding of the devil will affect our understanding of God, our understanding of heaven and what takes place in heaven, our understanding of angels, of immortality and eternal life, which then affects our understanding of our hope, our understanding of death, our understanding of the nature of man and the temptations that we face. And and it also affects our understanding of Christ's sacrifice and the meaning behind it. So there's a lot of different areas that this subject touches on. We're going to try and do it clearly and concisely this evening, and we're going to touch on a number of those subjects as we go through. But let's just look at what do people generally believe about the devil? You know, if you were to go out and you were to survey Christians, from many different denominations, you would get a pretty, a fairly consistent response back about what the devil is and what they understand the devil to be. In fact, there's a devil figure in many different religions of the world, and there's a devil figure that has gone through different mythologies in history, and this theme of good versus evil and so on. But if you were to ask Christians, well, what do you think about the devil? What, do, what does it mean? And what do you understand? These are some of the things that you might, might find somebody might tell you about the devil. And, and granted, not everybody has exactly the same views on the devil. There are some, a range of views sometimes on different aspects of the devil. Right? Just, just how powerful is the devil, for instance? Can the devil enter into your mind? Can it read your thoughts? Can the devil enter into your dreams? Some people say yes, some people say no. So there are different think, there's different ways of thinking on, on the devil, but generally, these are a number of the things on the screen that, that people would hold and, and believe about the devil. They would say that the devil is, also goes by the name Satan and Lucifer. He's the prince of darkness. They would say he's an eternal being. So he's not mortal like us. He's not immortal like God, but he's somewhere in between. He's this eternal being that is capable of sin, of course capable of sin, and, and because he is, he is a sinner. He, he was an angel of light who rebelled against God. And this happened, they say, before creation, before the creation of the world, before Genesis chapter 1. He was an angel of light who rebelled against God. He instigated a war in heaven and then was cast out to the earth. And his mission ever since has been to try and undermine the work of God and corrupt God's creation, turn people against God, tempt them, deceive them, put thoughts into their minds. He commands other evil angels, demons, evil spirits, has power of disease. They would say when it comes to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent was there, or the devil was there, and he operated the serpent sort of like a puppet. That's how the serpent was able to speak and how the serpent was able to say the words that he did because it was really the devil speaking through the serpent. 
Some would go so far as to attribute all the evil and all the suffering in the world to the devil and Satan. And Christ triumphed over him and will bring him to naught, for his doom is the lake of fire. Now, I could put Bible passages and take you through a series of Bible passages this evening to prove all of that. But those Bible passages, we suggest, would be not necessarily taken in context. And some of the things people believe about the devil, yes, they they find it from the Bible. But you see, the important thing is that when we go to the Bible, we need to take things in their context. And the context in which they occur within a chapter, within a book, and in the context of what all the scripture says about a certain subject. And so, yes, we are going to, as we go through, we are going to be pulling out verses here and there. But I, I suggest to you that you might want to go and actually look at those verses later on, look at the context, because what we're trying to establish is the context of all the scripture and what the scripture says on some of these things. Now, the way we're going to handle this subject this evening is we're going to go through four of these things. We're going to ask ask ourselves four questions about these commonly uh, believed things about the devil and see if they're correct. And then we're going to move on from there. We're going to take about five minutes for each one, and then we're going to move on to look at what does the Bible actually say about the devil. So the first question is this. Could an angel rebel against God? Put it another way, can an angel sin is what this comes down to. So in able to, to answer this question, you know, we could spend the entire evening just talking about the angels. So I'm only going to pull out a couple of verses to try and answer this question clearly, as clearly as we can. Now we're going to look at what Jesus had to say about the angels. So there's a passage in Luke chapter 20, and it's in verse 36. And there's two things that come out of this verse. The first one is, we learn that angels cannot die. Jesus says that. He says the angels cannot die. And then he also says here in this passage that we, mortal flesh and blood, believers today, have the hope of one day being given a nature just like the angels have now. So if we want to actually know what the angels are like, what nature do they have? Like, are they mortal? Are they immortal? Are they something in between? What does that mean? We can actually look at passages that talk about our hope for the future and what we are going to be made like in the future because that's what the angels are now. So this is what Jesus said. He says, They that will be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, and here's the point, neither can they die anymore, for they are equal unto the angels, and are the children of the God being the children of the resurrection. So we're going to be made equal to the angels in the future. We, will have, we have the wonderful hope of never being able to die. We cannot die, and the angels today cannot die. Now what does that mean in terms of Can angels rebel? Well, we're going to go to one more passage on this, and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection. It's not really about a chapter about angels, per se, but it's a chapter about our hope of what we are going to be in the future. And Jesus just said that what we hope to be in the future is the nature the angels have now. So that's how we can use this to understand the angels. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54, the Apostle Paul tells us what will happen after the resurrection from the dead that Jesus was just speaking about. He says, we have the wonderful hope that after the resurrection, this corruptible body that we have now is going to put on an incorruptible body. This mortal body that we have now of flesh and blood, is going to put on an immortal body. So there's the nature. Paul says what the nature of that body is going to be. Immortal. An immortal body. Immortality is what we, we hope to have in the future. And, if that's, and, and, and that, according to Jesus, 
is what the angels have now. The nature of the angels, as we say here on the screen, is incorruptible, it's immortal, it cannot die. So can something that is immortal, that cannot die, is it capable of sin? Well, just a couple of verses later in 1 Corinthians 15, we have the answer. Now this on the screen is a scorpion. And a scorpion has a stinger. And the stinger, if it stings you, will put venom into you and kill you. And Paul uses the language of this idea of a stinger when he talks about death and what causes death. And he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56, the sting of death is sin. And all through scripture, and we're going to see some more verses later, there's a relationship between sin and death. That it's because of sin that we die. Death is the consequence of sin. So if one cannot die, the opposite's also true. They haven't been stung, as it were, with sin. They're incapable of sinning. And that's the wonderful hope that we have in the future that the Bible gives us, that one day we will be given this immortal nature like the angels have now that, is, that will not die and that is incapable of sinning. What a wonderful thing that will be. But that also means the angels are not capable of sinning. So this whole notion that there are angels that sinned, heavenly angels that sinned, that rebelled against God, just po cannot possibly be. It runs against everything that we find in the scripture about what immortality is. And we'll see another verse later on that will shed some, even some more light on that. So the second question is this, was there a war in heaven? So this is an artist's rendition of popular beliefs about a war in heaven between the angel or the devil and his angels and Michael and his angels. There's only one place in scripture that talks about a war in heaven and it's in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 12. Now we're not going to expound the book of Revelation for you this evening. That would not even be possible even in the course of one class to be able to do that nor is that our desire to do that. I just want to pull out a couple of points that help us with our understanding to answer this question, was there a war in heaven? We have to understand, first of all, something about the book of Revelation. It's a book of symbol. And right in the very first book verse of the very first chapter of the book of Revelation, we're told that when Jesus Christ gave this revelation to the Apostle John, he signified it which means that it was put in symbolic form. So what he was seeing wasn't literal things that were going to take place, but symbols of things that were going to take place. And when we come to the book of the chapter of Revelation 12, where there is this mention of a war in heaven, well, there's lots of symbolic language, and it's evident that it's symbolic, can't be literal. We're, the, we're immediately introduced to a pregnant woman who's standing on the moon, clothed with the sun. How possibly could that be literal? Then we're introduced to a seven-headed, ten-horned dragon that's roaming about, and with its tail, it knocks a third of the stars of the sky down to the earth. Now, how could that be literal? So if this is a chapter that's all about symbols and not literal things, then we'd suggest to you that the war in heaven that is mentioned there and the devil and his angels fighting against Michael and his angels are also symbolic things, not to be taken literally. In fact, it runs counter to everything the Bible says about heaven. Heaven is God's dwelling place. Heaven is a place where God's will alone is done. Heaven's a place where we find in scripture nothing that is able to sin ever comes into heaven and approaches before God. So a war in heaven is not possible either. 
And one more proof to go along with that, in fact, John was told specifically what he was going to be seeing in the book of Revelation in these symbols. They were going to be events from the time that John received the, the, the revelation in 96 AD, at the end of the first century, and onwards into the future. Not something from way back before creation. And Revelation 4 verse 1 confirms that. It says, come John, I will show you things which must be hereafter. He was never told he was going to be seeing events way back in the past. So Revelation 12, a war in heaven, that's not to be taken literally. There was never a war in heaven. So third question, did the devil take over the serpent in Eden? Let's just go um, in, Bible to, in your Bible to Genesis chapter 3 to look at this question. Again, we could spend the whole evening just looking at Genesis 3, but we're just going to pick out a couple of verses. And you can go home and read the whole thing yourself. Genesis 3 is the chapter where Eve is in the garden. She's been commanded not to partake of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. And the serpent comes along and speaks to the woman. And the serpent tells the woman that, she, if, that God, what God told her wasn't true. And she can take, partake of it. And it will not cause, uh, nothing, nothing bad will happen by her doing that. Now, here's what we learn in the very first verse of Genesis chapter 3. We're told about the serpent. When we're immediately introduced to the serpent, it says, The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. So the first thing we learn is God made the serpent. And the second thing he, we need to know is he, is the mo he was the most subtle of all the creatures, all the animals that God had made was the serpent. And God wanted us to know that right from the outset. He had made the serpent and it was the most subtle of all the beasts. And then it goes on where the serpent begins to converse with Eve and then Eve eats, partakes of the, the fruit of the tree and then she gives it to, to Adam, he partakes, and then God speaks to them and brings his judgments. Now, we just want to look at the, what God has to say to the serpent. Genesis 3, verse 24. Sorry, that's the wrong verse. It should be verse 14, not 24. Genesis 3, verse 14. Now, think about this as we read this verse. Is God speaking to the serpent? Or is God speaking to the devil? that was speaking, that is, uh, people say, was speaking through the serpent. God says this, The Lord God said unto the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. Clearly, God is speaking to the serpent. If he was speaking to the devil, he would not be telling the devil that he's going to be going on his belly for the rest of his life. He's clearly speaking to the serpent, and God says to the serpent, you've done this. You've, you've said these things that weren't correct. Nowhere in Genesis 3 is there any hint of a fact that there was a devil or Satan that was speaking through the serpent. And God would be completely unjust in bringing judgment down upon the serpent if the serpent wasn't responsible for what it had done. And then when we come to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul adds further confirmation to this. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, he says that the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. This might be the perfect place for, for the Apostle Paul to, uh, to tell us that it was the devil that was doing this. But he doesn't. He says the serpent was the one who was subtle. And that's exactly what we learn, Genesis 3, verse 1. 
The serpent was subtle, and the serpent was the one who beguiled Eve. So we suggest to you there's nothing in the scriptures to prove in the least that the serpent was possessed by the devil, or that the devil was the one using the serpent like a puppet to speak to Eve. The serpent had just said these things based upon his own observation of what was going on in the garden around him, and came to these conclusions. There's a lot more we could say about that, but that's all we're going we're to say for now. So now the fourth question. Is the devil whispering in your ear? This is a, this is a common idea, that the, the devil, the, and what, what's meant by that is that the devil is putting thoughts into your mind. So sometimes when you get an evil thought into your mind, a thought that is not right, sometimes that thought's been put there by the devil. You didn't come up with it. The devil came up with it and put it there, is the idea. Just to elaborate a little bit further, um, uh, my wife, um, when she was introduced uh, to Christianity, she became part of an evangelical group. And the way that they explained this process to her was that whenever you face a battle within your mind between doing right and doing wrong, this tug of war that's going on, that's really the devil and God warring in your mind. And the devil's trying to pull you in this direction, and God wants you to go in that direction. And that's really what the struggle is. So we have to ask ourselves the question, is this really what happens when we're tempted? Well, I'm going to put a couple of verses on the screen. And what I'm going to do is I'm not going to show you the whole verse at first. I'm going to show you part of the verse. And I want you to think about what comes next in the verse. It's almost like fill in the blank. So this is, the, this is James in the New Testament. In James chapter 1, another good verse to, to probably look up. James 1 verse 13, he talks about temptation and how temptation works. So let's see if there's anything here about the devil putting things into our mind. James says this, James 1 verse 13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So two points we want to take out away from that. First of all, notice there that God cannot be tempted with evil. So that goes back to what we were saying earlier. The nature of God, which is an immortal nature, can't even be tempted with evil. And we suggest to you that the angels have that same nature, that they cannot be tempted with evil. But we also learn, James is saying, don't, when you face temptation, do never blame God. God cannot be blamed for it. But then he says in verse 14, every man is tempted. Every single person faces temptation. And that includes Jesus Christ, as we'll see in a moment. Now, what is going to come next? He's going to explain where how the process of temptation works and where temptation comes from. Every man is tempted when. So what's going to come next? Now, he's just said, don't blame God. So is he going to say, every man is tempted when the devil enters into your mind? Blame the devil? Let's see what he says. He says, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. James mentions nothing about the work of a devil when we are tempted. In fact, he says, the only one that we can blame, he says, you can't blame God, the only one that you can blame is yourself and the nature that we have. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. So temptation arises from within us, from our own lusts. And then verse 15, he goes on to describe the process that we go through, and he, he likens it to giving birth. And he says, then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. So when we give in to those lusts that we have, those desires, those passions, when we give in to them, then we sin. And then he says, sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth death. Another passage that tells us the link between sin and death. Death is the consequence of sin. 
But again, nothing here about the devil. Let's go to Jesus Christ and see what he has to say. Mark chapter 7. Again, I'm going to leave part of the verses blank. Jesus says this, and this is Mark 7, verse 20. He said, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from blank somewhere, we're going to find out in a moment where, from somewhere proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from somewhere, and they defile the man. Where do they come from? Where do evil thoughts come from? Where do thoughts of being a thief and covetousness and wickedness come from? Do they come from the devil? Let's find out. Jesus says they come from within, out of the heart of men. He mentions nothing about the devil. This would be the perfect place to tell us about the devil. He doesn't mention it. All he says is the same thing James has told us. These evil things, all these evil thoughts and desires that sometimes people have, they come from within us, out of the heart of men. Now let's see what God has to say on the subject about the heart of men. Genesis 8, verse 21, this was right after the flood. God says this, the imagination, that is the desires, the thoughts, the passions, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, from the time he's very young. That's what God says about our internal desires, our imaginations, our thoughts. They are evil. And then he confirms it in Genesis 17 by saying, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So the Bible doesn't teach the notion that we, mankind, is inherently good. In fact, God says here, and Jesus said, that we are actually have a nature that is actually bent towards and actually desires things that are against the things of God. We have a natural desire, a natural tendency to gravitate towards those things. God says the imagination of man's heart is evil. But notice that Jeremiah 17 passage, what he says there. The, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's the most deceitful thing. Now, wouldn't you expect the most deceitful thing should be the devil? God says the heart of man is the most deceitful thing. So what we, what we conclude then is the devil, there's nowhere in scripture that ever mentions this idea that the devil is whispering in our ear or putting thoughts into our mind or entering into our dreams. Some suggest that when a child has a nightmare, it's the devil coming into their mind. The Bible says nothing about that. The Bible doesn't teach the idea of a war in heaven or of a fallen angel or that the serpent was a puppet of the devil or that the devil is whispering in your ear. The, the Bible doesn't teach any of these things. So now we have to ask, well, what does the Bible teach about the devil? It mentions the devil. We read about the devil. What is it talking about then? So we need to look a little bit at the word devil to give an answer to this. Now, you might know that the Old Testament was originally written in the Hebrew language, and the New Testament was written in the Greek language, and then translated from there into English. So it's helpful sometimes to go back to the original Greek or Hebrew word to find out the meaning of that word, and, and, to, and that might help us in understanding certain things. You may be surprised to know that there's no occurrence of the devil in the Old Testament. The Bible doesn't talk about the devil in the Old Testament. Now, granted, it does talk about Satan, does use the word Satan, but doesn't use the word devil. 
we're not going to go into the reasons why this evening that is the case, but, uh, but just know that there is no mention of the devil in the Old Testament. So it's a New Testament word, and it's, the, it, it's a Greek word, diabolos, that occurs 38 times in the New Testament. And it simply means one who accuses. It's not a name, and it's not a title. And that's what I want to really emphasize here. The devil is not a name or a title. It's a word that means one who accuses. And in fact, there's a few passages where the translators translated it into false accuser and slanderer. It's the same word. So here's a couple of these passages. So in Titus, when the Apostle Paul was writing to the man Titus, he says to Titus that the aged women or the older women in their assemblies, they need to be in good behavior. And they shouldn't be going around falsely accusing people of things. And that word false accusers that's used there is the same word, diabolos, which is translated elsewhere as devil throughout the rest of the New Testament. Similarly, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 11, it translates the word diabolos as slanderers. And it says that the wives of deacons, the wives of the leaders of the believers, should not be going around slandering people. They should not be slanderers, but it's the same word. And, and the point that we're trying to draw here is that the, de the word devil is not a title, and it's not a name. It's a word that simply means one who accuses. Now, here's an example in John 6, verse 70, where Jesus, where the word devil is there, but it's clearly referring to Judas Iscariot. We're told it's speaking about Judas Iscariot. Jesus answered them. He's speaking to the 12 apostles. He says, have not I chosen you 12? One of you is a devil. He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now, here, you could just swap out the word devil with false accuser, slanderer. One of you is a false uh, accuser. One of you is a slanderer. Judas, it's you. Because he was. So this is how the word diabolos is used and what it means. Now, I'm going to show you a couple of other places and a couple of examples of where this word diabolos is used and you can actually, as we read through it, this word devil, you can actually, if you think about it, and don't read anything else into the verse, you can actually figure out what it's talking about and who it's talking about. So here's a verse about the religious opponents to God's truth. Luke 8, it's the parable of the sower. Well-known parable. Jesus told a story about a man who was taking the, the, the seed and the seed was going and falling onto all different types of ground. And he said the seed represents the word of God that's being preached. And it falls on, on the ears of many different kinds of people. Like seed falls on the ears of, or on the different types of land. And he talked about some seed that fell on the pathway. Or it's called the wayside. And before it's even had chance to be able to even get absorbed by the soil, if there's any soil there, the birds have swooped down and they've gobbled up the seed. Then Jesus gives the interpretation and tells us about these birds. Who are these birds that swoop in and gobble the seed up? He says, Luke 8, verse 12, those by the wayside are they that hear. So these are people that they hear the gospel message being preached. But before they've had any chance to be able to absorb it, the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. Now again, just read that in terms of the meaning of the devil. The false accuser, the slanderer comes and takes away the word out of their hearts. Now, who in the gospel records, as you read through, who was always there when Jesus Christ was preaching, who were slandering his message and falsely accusing him? The answer is the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders of his day taking people's minds away from him, turning them against him before they could even have a chance to absorb the things that he was teaching them. Here's a passage in Luke 8 where the devil 
is speaking about the Pharisees and the scribes. What about this one? This is, this is one in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. And here, Peter warns the believers. He says, you need to be sober. You need to be vigilant. Be on your guard. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now, is Peter talking about the devil as commonly thought about? Well, if, again, if you just switch the words out and you just translate the devil as your adversary, the slanderer, the false accuser, as a roaring lion is walking about seeking whom he may devour, what would that mean to those that Peter was writing to in 1 Peter? Well, in the days that Peter was writing, Emperor Nero was on the throne, leading a great persecution against the Christians and feeding them to the lions. So when he said, your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour, it could easily be referring to the Emperor Nero and his men walking around and catching the Christians. And Peter says, you need to be on your guard and be vigilant against this. The point that we've been trying to make is this. You can read a lot into this word devil from ideas that people have. But when you come to these passages, you could easily just understand them in, in, as referring to ordinary people, as in the case of Judas in John 6, false religious leaders like the Pharisees and the scribes in Luke 8, or political powers like Emperor Nero and his men in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. See, in all these cases, the word devil is referring to someone or something that is falsely accusing or slandering. But whoever it is, they're acting upon sinful desires of the flesh. And we'd certainly say that with, with Judas. And we'd say that with the scribes and Pharisees and with the, the political leaders. They were acting, the, the fleshly lusts that they had were driving them to act in this way against Christ and to falsely accuse and slander the believers or even Christ himself. Well, there's another way that this word is used, and it brings us to our reading from Hebrews chapter 2. So if you go to Hebrews chapter 2, and this is a passage which is really helpful on this subject, because this passage is going to shed a lot of light onto the meaning of the devil. Now, Hebrews chapter 2, and we just want to pick up a couple of verses before we get to our key verse, because the key verse is Hebrews 2, verse 14. But before we get there, just look at verse 9. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. So when Jesus came and was on earth, in his ministry, later on in Hebrews, it's called the days of his flesh. In the days of his flesh, he was a little lower than the angels. How so? Well, he could suffer and he could die. So there's actually proof, further proof, that the angels don't suffer and the angels don't die. But Jesus could. And that was important for the work that he came to do. Look down at verse 16. For verily he took not on him, that's Christ, Christ took not on him the nature of angels. So he didn't have the nature of angels, the immortal nature that angels have. He was, he was, he was flesh and blood like you and I. And verse 18 says, For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted. Jesus suffered and part of that suffering was the temptations that he faced. Jesus faced temptations. And actually over in Hebrews 4 and, uh, 4 and verse uh, 15, it says that Jesus was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. He never gave in to those temptations, but he faced temptations. He had those same lusts and the same heart 
that you and I have. But he never gave in to those temptations. He never gave in to those lusts. So now with that, we come to verse 14, where the same thing that's been brought out there is emphasized again at the beginning, that Jesus partook of our nature. He had the same flesh and blood nature we did, we, ha we have, and that was very critically important for the work he came to do. So Hebrews 2.14 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, that's Jesus, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Notice the emphasis that's there. How much emphasis, how important this was. He also himself likewise took part of the same. Why? That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. So Christ had a mission. His mission was to destroy the devil. And he could only do that by having flesh and blood nature like us. So here's three points we get out of this verse. Christ destroyed the devil, number one. So which leads us to, the, to another interesting question. If Christ destroyed the devil, how come we keep reading about the devil later on? You know, you've got to be, whatever view you're going to come up with of the devil, you've got to be able to answer that question. If Christ destroyed him, why do we keep reading about the devil as you continue on through the rest of the New Testament? Second point is the only way Christ could destroy the devil was by having a mortal nature and dying upon the cross. And the third point is, we learn here that the devil is that which has the power of death. Now, when you look at this verse, one thing I want to point out, do you notice how it says there, he will destroy him that had the power of death? But in the original Greek language, it's not so clear, the word him. And it could easily have been translated simply as it or, or that. It could just say that which had the power of death. It's not so definite in the, in the Greek language that it's a him that's there. But the devil is described as that which has the power of death. So now we have two questions that we can ask to help us identify what is the devil that Christ came and destroyed. We can ask this question, what had the power of death? And the second question is, what did Christ destroy when he died upon the cross? So let's see if we can answer those questions. What had the power of death? Well, in fact, we've actually already answered this earlier. We looked at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56, which says, the sting of death is sin. We looked at James 1, verse 15, that says, sin brings forth death. Now, we didn't look at Romans 6, verse 23, but it says the same thing. The wages of sin is death. That is, what you get for sinning is death. Death is the consequence of sin. So what has the power of death? Sin. Now let's see if we can put that to the test. So if someone came and didn't sin, would death have any power over them? Could death hold on to them? Well, fortunately, we have an example. Jesus Christ, who didn't sin. And Acts 2, verse 23, talks about Christ being crucified. And then in verse 24 says, God raised him up from the dead, having loosed the pains of death because... Why was Jesus raised? Because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. The grave, death, the pains of death, death could not hold Jesus Christ. Because he had done no sin. And in God's righteousness and God's justice, he had to raise his son. So what had the power of death? Sin. Let's, answer, let's ask the other question. What did Christ come to destroy? Well, these two verses on the screen tell us what Christ destroyed on the cross. It's the flesh with its lusts that lead to sin. You know, it doesn't, we don't need to, to really think about this too hard to think about what was destroyed in the death of Christ on the cross. His body was destroyed. A body that was flesh and blood that had these same lusts and these same 
tendencies towards sin that we do. The flesh with its lusts that lead to sin was destroyed. Romans 8 verse 3 says, and we're going to come in partway through the verse, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, God sent his son sharing our same nature. He had flesh and blood and for sin, or another translation says as an offering for sin that is upon the cross, Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. In his flesh, he condemned it. He put it to death. Romans 6, verse 6 says this. Now, Romans 6 is talking more about us following Christ's example, being baptized. But he says, know this. And he's talking about when we're baptized. Our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And in this verse, Romans 6, verse 6, he says, when Christ was crucified, the body of sin was destroyed. Interesting that that word destroyed there in Romans 6, verse 6, is the exact same Greek word in Hebrews 2, 14, that Christ destroyed the devil. He destroyed the body of sin the flesh and blood body that we have with its lusts that lead to sin. So we come back with that knowledge now to Hebrews 2.14 and say, what is the devil that Christ destroyed on the cross through his death? And we would say the devil is the sinful desires of the flesh that result in sin. Let's put that to the test. Let's answer our questions. Christ destroyed the devil. How? First, he defeated every temptation that he faced in his life. He never sinned. Second, he literally destroyed the flesh. He condemned his, his flesh. He put it to, to an open public shame in front of everyone. The flesh with its desires needs to be put to death. Now, let's just say there that what Christ did literally, we're not asked to do that literally. We're not asked to literally crucify ourselves but we're asked to do it symbolically in our mind. He, second point is, the only, we, we said that from this verse, we learned that the only way Christ could destroy the devil was by having human nature, mortal nature, flesh and blood, and dying upon the cross. Now, does that make sense with this understanding? Yes. Because if Christ didn't have our flesh and blood nature, he could not have defeated temptation. He wouldn't have had temptations to begin with. And he could not have destroyed the flesh if he didn't have the flesh. So it all now makes sense that what Christ destroyed was the devil. And the devil is a word that is used many times to speak about the sinful desires of the flesh that result in sin. Let's just go back to this chart and now add one more point to it. So we say the devil is the sinful desires of the flesh, man's rebellious lusts that result in sin. And it's seen in ordinary people like Judas, false religious leaders like the Pharisees and scribes, political powers like Emperor Nero and his men, or the internal lusts and desires that one has, like in Christ himself. And we need to resist the devil. And this is the lesson. We need to resist the devil. We need to resist those sinful desires of the flesh, those lusts however they manifest themselves, in all its manifestations, whether it's in our mind or whether it's those sinful desires and lusts playing out in the world around us by those that would slander and falsely accuse God's ways and God's truth. So we have some key takeaways. The Bible does not support the popular understanding of the devil and Satan as many people understand it. Now, we didn't talk about Satan. Your sheet has a couple of points at the end about Satan. Let me just say this. Same with the devil. We said the devil is not a, not a word that's a title. It's not a word that's a name for someone. And neither is Satan. Satan's not a title. It's not a name. It's a word that means adversary or opponent. Adversary or opponent. And if you just swap out the word Satan and you put in there adversary or opponent, you'll be able to find that 
there's nothing actually that's in the Bible about some supernatural fallen angel. In fact, even God in one passage in the Old Testament is referred to as Satan. And you may be surprised by that. And that's on your sheet, by the way. We also learn that temptations and sins arise from within, from our own lusts, which are opposed to the things of God. Here's the key takeaway from that. Nobody's whispering in our ear. Nobody's putting thoughts there. They all come from ourselves. And we are the only ones to blame for our sins. That's the point. We stand personally responsible to God, and we can't pass the blame to anybody else. We can't say, the devil made me do it. We also learn that the devil, this word, diabolos, speaks of man's rebellious lusts and sinful desires. It's not, there's no proof anywhere in the Bible that it's an evil angel. Sin is the great enemy in opposition to God. And sin is what needs to be resisted. Sin is what needs to be defeated. And that's exactly what Jesus did, leaving us a pattern for us in his example. Jesus defeated and destroyed the devil upon the cross by never giving in to temptation and by putting the flesh to death. And as we said, Jesus asks us not to literally do that, not to literally inflict pain upon our body and crucify ourselves, but to take that and to crucify the desires, the thoughts that come into our mind at times, and to put them to death. Crucify those thoughts. Don't give them a foothold in your mind. And so hopefully tonight, what we've been able to say, or be able to show, is several ideas that people have about the devil, the Bible doesn't support, but hopefully you'll have a better understanding now of how the Bible does use this word devil or diabolos. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.